1: It's time for your best legal defense with your host, Lonnie McDowell. This could be the most important hour of your entire week. Our program discusses the criminal defense and legal system and what it can mean to you. Lonnie and his guest experts will discuss cases that are groundbreaking and important to today's law and court system, from arrest to bail. We know you have questions about the law, and we're here to answer those too now, here's trial attorney and host Lonnie McDowell.
2: Good morning and welcome to your best legal defense. I'm your host, Lonnie McDowell. Uh, Today we're going to be discussing uh, DUI and uh, DUIDs, which are driving under the influence of drugs. Now, nobody plans to get charged or arrested for a DUI, but if you're arrested and convicted, it can have devastating long-term effects on your life. To make matters worse, you also have to contend With not one but two government agencies, both the courts and of course the lovely DMV. So my host, my guest host this week uh, is criminal defense attorney uh, Aaron Forrester. He practices DUI and criminal defense here in California and also in Nevada. Um, Aaron and I have been longtime friends. We were at the U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, He was on the drug task force. I was on the uh, gang unit. Uh, We both studied together for the bar. Um We were partners uh, in a firm for a couple of years before uh, we uh, decided uh, to take different tax. Uh, I went more uh, for for uh, criminal defense and uh, Aaron kind of specializes in uh, DUI and duID defense but still practices some criminal defense uh, here and there uh, Aaron started his own firm in two thousand and thirteen and he's still doing uh work both here in uh, Southern California and also in Las Vegas Nevada so Aaron welcome to the show thank you Uh, so today we're going to talk about uh, DUI and uh, more uh, specifically uh, driving under the influence of drugs which uh, today especially here in California and states that are legalizing marijuana or at least legalizing for medical use is becoming uh, more and more of an issue um, so, what is it that, um, you know, is the biggest problem with uh, driving under the influence of drugs? And uh, being, you know, when I say that, I'm specifically talking about how uh, detecting and uh, proving a conviction. Okay,
3: and just to clarify with the question, do we want to focus in with drugs and marijuana or drugs as a big topic?
2: Well, let's do uh, drugs. is a big topic, but marijuana. We can get into to specifics, but basically, uh, you know, most people know DUI. You don't go out. You don't drink. You don't drive. Um, you know, um, and you know, with the crackdown over the years and, and and things, people are very aware of that. But a lot of people aren't quite uh, as familiar or don't think about it in the same way, I guess, uh, as a. De- you know an alcohol DUI is prescription drugs uh, now marijuana being one of those prescription drugs.
3: Okay well I think when it comes to alcohol for example the vehicle code is set up in such a way that it's really meant to get you no matter how you're drinking. Um, If you've got enough that a segment of the population would be drunk you're probably at a point 0.08 or higher. Um, And there's per se laws with alcohol that once you have that 0.08 or higher, you're a DUI. Even if you are in your own mind sober, even if you are able to pass the field sobriety test, you're still technically a DUI. When it comes to drugs, we don't have these per se standards. Instead, the vehicle code requires, and this is actually found in the California Vehicle Code 23152E, while the alcohol is in A and B, but the code actually states that it's unlawful for any person who's under the influence of any drug to drive a vehicle.
2: And now, this particular part of the uh, the vehicle code uh, is a very subjective test. This is uh, this was added uh, at the insistence of DAs back in, I think, the late 80s, early 90s, because so many people were being pulled over for DUI, but weren't blowing a .08 or higher. So uh, even though officers felt that they were not capable of driving safely, so these uh, the under the influence section was added to the vehicle code. Um, and th- as I said, that's a very subjective uh, test, meaning it's what the officer thinks. There's really no way of measuring it.
3: That is correct. I mean there are methods of detecting the presence of drugs through chemical testing inside your system. There's a lack though of a uniformity or a standard of what is actually being intoxicated while driving. Um, Because of this, it provides it just provides a lack of guidance both for prosecutors and defense attorneys of knowing was my client if there is something detected in their system was he actually intoxicated to the point he could not drive a vehicle safely Um, and I think that becomes the biggest issue some drugs since we're, we're speaking in the general category of prescription drugs and drugs in general Some drugs are easier to detect in a system, and we know the effects a little bit greater than other types of drugs. But other drugs, and I'll bring marijuana um, specifically now, marijuana is a fat-soluble drug. It stays in your system for a while. So, in theory, someone could be smoking marijuana or consuming marijuana in a day, two days, Later get pulled over for a suspicion of a DUI. If a chemical test is done on this person, they will show up positive as being under well, as having marijuana in their system. Now the question is, were they really under the influence of marijuana while driving? And even if they were under the influence, were they actually intoxicated? Was this actually impairing their driving?
2: Right. Okay. Now as you mentioned, alcohol dissipates pretty quickly in, in the bloodstream. Um, it metabolizes uh, roughly at about .02 per hour. Um, so 12 hours later, you know, technically you shouldn't register any alcohol in your bloodstream or extraordinarily low amounts. But as you said, marijuana stays in, in your system.
3: That is correct. and. It's also good to note that there's different types of testing that can be done by a police officer to determine what is in your system. So, for example, for the most part, highway patrol, local police have a very difficult time administering breath tests and detecting marijuana. We have learned of some new systems that will detect the presence, but for the most part, they're not employed by law enforcement. And the current systems out there really aren't made to detect marijuana. But there's other types of tests, such as a blood test or a urine test. These chemical tests will detect the presence even long after the person is no longer under the influence of marijuana.
2: Yeah, these, uh, marijuana can basically, uh, in a lot of people, be detected up to like 30 days later.
3: Yes, yeah, so when it comes to urine tests, for example, It is not unheard of for someone to have it in their system up to 30 days later, and even more so, it seems that, especially with um, the passage of medicinal marijuana laws, and even in the states with recreational laws, that it's not unheard of, it's actually pretty likely that a lot of users will have this, uh, will have trace amounts of marijuana cannabinoids in their system up to a month later. When it comes to blood tests, however, the detection rate is a lot shorter. Regardless, even with blood tests, days later, you can still show as having trace amounts of marijuana in your system.
2: Right. Now, is there a way to quantify uh, from these uh, tests uh, how long ago you used marijuana? Like In DUI, you have what they call retrograde extrapolation, meaning the body generally dissipates the alcohol at a certain rate, so taking time and the amount of alcohol in your system, they can kind of calculate um, how much you had and when you had it.
3: This is a tricky question um, with a lot of gray area in between. California and, for example, Nevada do the testing differently. California tends to show the presence of marijuana in your system and they'll show at a certain marker to detect that, you know, this wasn't a friend smoking next to you or something of that nature, but this is something you actually consumed. Nevada actually tries to establish the timing of smoking by looking at which cannabinoids have been metabolized by your system and which have not. Regardless, there really is not a standard that law enforcement is utilizing nor a standard that is really accepted by the scientific community that can break down exactly when was this person under the influence and when are they not under the influence. Okay.
2: So uh, some of these tests can actually tell whether or not you at you smoked or if your friend was smoking uh, near you.
3: <laughs> it's, it, it doesn't actually the contact high. <laughs> whether you received a quote unquote contact high. But basically what they're doing is there's a certain standard of error that can show up in these tests that false positives can come up and there could be arguably situations um, where yes, you're in a room, someone's blowing smoke in your face and you could in theory receive these amounts of marijuana in your system. Because of that, standard drug testing procedures require a certain cutoff point to determine that this really isn't to a high degree of certainty. This is not someone else smoking in the room or this is not a false positive.
2: Now, you mentioned that there isn't a lot of consensus in the scientific community uh, over these tests. Now, one of the standards for admitting evidence or certain types of evidence into court is that... It is accepted by the scientific community. Um, in the cases that you've been been handling lately, have you found that to be a, a defense or uh, or the courts kind of overlooking and uh, letting it slide a little bit as to some of these uh, new tests coming out with uh, you know marijuana and driving?
3: Well, I guess the first thing to mention when answering this question is, different jurisdictions, different states have different standards for the admissibility of evidence. The two states that I practice in actually have two different standards. One uses the Frye standard, one uses the Dilbert standard. In both standards, I am finding that tests showing the presence of marijuana in your system will always be accepted by the court. Um, Now this is I guess I should break this down, there's a matter of what's getting accepted by the court to be used as evidence, and then there's the credibility of that evidence moving forward. So just because a prosecutor can prove that my client had marijuana in his system doesn't mean that my client was intoxicated while driving. But this is a question of fact for the, the finder of fact, sometimes a jury, sometimes a judge, to determine.
2: Okay. So they're allowing these these tests that basically um, tell the presence of whether or not someone's smoking, but not so much to the ones that are now coming out trying to uh, establish a timeline. Yes.
3: um, So the way I've been seeing it in my own case is they're admitting these tests to show the presence and the presence only. As far as a timeline, I haven't actually had a DA try to to admit evidence proving my client was in fact intoxicated at this time and not intoxicated during these other times. They, as a method of their own persuasion, just lump it all together and say they have marijuana in their system, obviously they're intoxicated. But it's not quite so
2: obvious. Right. And I, and I think this is going to be challenged more and more in the courts as more and more states are getting, uh, you know, either legalizing for medicinal purposes or, uh, you know, legalizing altogether, uh, which we'll talk about uh, when we come back. We have to take a short uh, commercial break here. Uh, but on the other side, we want to get more into some of the new marijuana laws.
0: Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: Have you been arrested? Is someone you love in a legal jam? Don't get advice from just anyone. Call the criminal defense experts at McDowell & Associates. Attorneys, McDowell & Associates has over 20 years of legal experience. The National Trial Lawyers Association named us one of the top 100 California criminal defense trial attorneys for two years in a row. We know that sometimes good people just make bad mistakes. We know the system and we know how to fight for you. We know what the prosecutors will do, we know their weaknesses, and we'll do everything at our disposal to get you the best possible outcome. Your case will receive the personalized attention it deserves. McDowell & Associates, attorneys, has the experience and the skill to make sure you or the ones you love receive the best legal defense and strategy. Call 213-401-2322 or visit McDowellDefense.com. That's 213-401-2322. 2322 or McDowellDefense.com. se habla español. When your future is on the line, your future is our business. Call us at 213-401-2322.
0: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time, the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: This is your best legal defense with Lonnie McDowell. If you have a question for the host or guest, we're ready to take your call at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Be sure to tell the screener if you need to remain anonymous with your question. You may also send an email to radioshow at McDowellDefense.com. Now, back to the show.
2: Uh, welcome back uh, this is your best legal defense this week's uh, guest host with me here is Aaron Forrester he's a, uh, a DUI uh, DUID which is driving under the influence of drugs uh, criminal defense attorney here in Southern California and Angeles and in Las Vegas and we're talking about uh, you know marijuana being uh, an issue uh, with uh, driving under the influence and prior to the show we were talking about uh, Drug tests and and how you know what they can tell and what they they can't tell, and Aaron, it, it's just the fact that these tests that are being admitted to court, uh, and as you said, the the DA is saying, well, the test shows that there is some amount of marijuana in the person's system. Therefore, obviously, he was under the influence and and uh, you know was driving uh, illegally. Um, it's just the mere presence of THC or any of the other metabolites in a person's system, is that kind of a slam dunk for the DAs now? Or or are there good defenses that uh, actually work?
3: Well, there's really good defenses here. And let me say this is not a slam dunk. One of the major problems with this issue is it's not a slam dunk for either the prosecutor or the defense. For the defense, my, uh, my legal opinion in theory is it should be a slam dunk however what we find in practice is the prosecutors don't give up it's not a slam dunk it ends up costing the client a lot of money and resources in order to fight these things and let me explain a little so in order to be found guilty of a DUID you have to have been driving a motor vehicle you have to be under the influence and being under the influence of this drug impaired your mental abilities, that you are unable to drive with the caution of a sober, ordinary driver under the circumstances.
2: Right. Now, you mentioned that uh, one of the, uh, the factors is uh, driving a motor vehicle. Now, that is here in California one of the requirements that driving has to be established that you move the car but that's not the same in all states some is just being in control meaning you could have the car keys and be sitting in the car parked in a parking lot correct
3: that is correct and I've been gearing my analysis a little towards California because of the fact that we're physically sitting in California right now but that is absolutely correct one certain jurisdictions require control of the vehicle And then two, it gets a little misleading because some statutes that require driving have then been interpreted by case law to say control of the vehicle or will make presumptions that if an officer finds you in the vehicle, for example, the keys are in the ignition, you're passed out in the car, the driver is allowed to make a legal presumption that you were driving the vehicle and that's how you ended up in this car at this location. These are rebuttable presumptions, so for example, if you're in front of your house, you might be able to rebut this presumption pretty easily. You never made it past your house. On the other hand, if you're at a gas station, if you're at a bar, on the street somewhere, eh, the question becomes, how did you end up at that bar? How did you
2: end up at that gas station? Well, it reminds me of one of the cases when when we were actually uh, business partners. Is, and you'll remember the, the case, um, they had charged the, the individual with uh, DUID and also al- alcohol and drugs. Um, and the police had gotten a call, 911 call, of someone had uh, crashed into a mailbox. <laughs> uh, you, know, you know the case they're talking about. Yes. And it was one of those, you know, it was a mailbox, it was on a brick pedestal. <laughs> And the car was just kind of like leaning against against the uh, the, uh, the pedestal, and we actually did <laughs> we actually got got that case. Uh, you know, we won that case in arguing that um, the person uh, went out, um, got into his car, fell asleep, and knocked the handbrake off, and the car rolled. No one had actually ever seen him drive, and the first responders never noted whether the car was running or if the keys were actually in the ignition, which was a help to us. We Had the keys been in the ignition or the car was running, then obviously. But our defense was, he went out to sleep it off and just accidentally bumped the brake, and it it, it carried the day. But it is, as you're saying, uh, a lot of times, if you're on the side of the freeway, um, or in a parking lot, how did you get there? And, you know, I, I know you've had cases like this, and, and we've argued this before, is, well, the person got there while they were still point eight or below, felt the effects, and decided to be a good citizen and pull into a parking lot and sleep it off. And sometimes that works, and sometimes it doesn't. I mean, here in California, because they have to prove the driving. Other states where it's in control you know, being a good citizen doesn't do you any good (laughs) because you're still in control. (laughs) But have you, you've had other cases like that, right?
3: Yes, that is, I mean, we run into these cases all the time and these cases are very fact-specific. Fact-specific to whether we can even get the case dismissed as a matter of law, meaning we don't even have to worry about a jury, or moving forward, whether this is an issue of credibility and, uh... Let the fact finder decide whether the person was driving or not. But this is one major defense in any type of DUI: is was mm-hmm. the person actually driving? Were they actually in control? The law here in California has made presumptions from the time of drug test to determine if you were intoxicated at hour one. Well, let's use hour two. That you were, you must have been intoxicated during that full second hour and even during the first hour but it still doesn't make the presumption that you were driving
2: <laughs> Right.
3: so if you can't prove the driving element you're, the, the prosecutor is going to lose this case or have a lot of difficulty Difficult. with this case but it brings me back to another element that they must prove that you are under the influence of drugs while driving with alcohol there's what's called there's these presumptions in place that if you have a .08 or higher, there's going to be a presumption that you didn't just get drunk right then and there. And as I said, these presumptions are rebuttable, but there'll be a window, and every jurisdiction is different. Some are two hours, some are three
2: hours. And California's three, right?
3: Correct. Right. And uh, but in Nevada, we have a two-hour presumption. Right. So, and I'm not really aware of anything over three hours. Um, but regardless, when it comes to drugs, we do not have these presumptions. So now back to the officer's subjective uh, observations. He must come forward with evidence that shows you must have been intoxicated. Now right. let's think of what these observations would be. Right,
2: and those are the FSTs, as they're called, the, the field sobriety tests or the uh, roadside gymnastics, as uh, defense attorneys <laughs> like to call them.
3: Exactly. And it, these are methods for the officer to try to determine whether you're intoxicated. It starts, by the way, from the minute the officer approaches your vehicle. So many people are aware of getting pulled over for a routine traffic violation. Let's say a speeding ticket or running a stop sign. And especially notorious is the California Highway Patrol on this, they'll come to your vehicle, and what's the, especially if it's evening or later, what's the first thing you usually notice? They're holding a flashlight. What is that flashlight for? Well, one, officer safety. They're gonna look in your vehicle, make sure there's no weapons around. But at some point, they're probably going to ask you to either follow a flashlight or follow their fingers. They're going to ask you to look to your left and to your right. They're also going to start asking you questions. And as simple and harmless as these questions sound, they're not so harmless. For example, where are you driving from? Well, the officer's trying to get it in his head. He's trying to paint a picture. Are you coming from a bar, a friend's house where there could be drinking or smoking? Uh, where are you going to? He's also trying to see if you say you're driving from San Diego to Los Angeles and you say I'm driving to Mexico, well then why are you driving north? Right. (laughs) And we've had
2: those cases.
3: (laughs) And what's funny is when you get pulled over you're not even thinking about these questions. You think they're routine questions. I myself have caught myself completely sober being pulled over for something very small like a speeding ticket and the officer will ask a simple question and I start thinking oh where am I going? (laughs) but I mean it's not every day you get pulled over, get a little adrenaline flowing, you start thinking about the consequences of your ticket and before you know it you're actually giving the officer reasonable suspicion that you're under the influence of some kind of drug or of alcohol. And uh, he may decide then to ask you to follow his fingers. He may ask you to step out of the vehicle. And if you're really unfortunate, then he continues with the field sobriety tests. And uh, once you're at that point, you should be thinking, I'm doing something wrong already.
2: <laughs> well, you know, not only that you're thinking you're doing something wrong. I mean, I, you know. It's very nerve-wracking to be pulled over uh, by the police, Um, you know, even just, you know, having, you know, driving down the freeway, not doing anything wrong, not ever, you know, having a drink in the last, you know, week or anything, and you see a a police officer in your rearview mirror, and all of a sudden you start getting nervous just because (laughs) he's there. His lights don't even have to be on, and it's like, oh, God, and, you know, everyone tenses up. Then you, you have someone pull you over it's like your adrenaline's pumping people start to sweat and these are signs that the officer likes to use cuz you know we see it in every uh, arrest report is you know they were sweaty they were you know their their eyes were watery you know they're you know bloodshot which of course has a thousand different reasons you know they were smoking in you know, a cigarette in the car, so the smoke's in their eyes. Or, you know, they just got off work, so they're tired, their eyes are bloodshot. But all of these things, of course, leave the officer, give the officer an excuse to get you out of that car and start doing the... Uh, the roadside gymnastics, which I want to get into a little bit more uh, when we come back. I also want to take, uh, and we have some questions that were emailed in, and if there's any callers out there that want to call in a question, we'd be happy to take it, and we'll do that uh, when we come back from uh, this commercial break.
1: Have you been arrested? Is someone you love in a legal jam? Don't get advice from just anyone. Call the criminal defense experts at McDowell & Associates. Attorneys. McDowell & Associates has over 20 years of legal experience. The National Trial Lawyers Association named us one of the top 100 California criminal defense trial attorneys for two years in a row. We know that sometimes good people just make bad mistakes. We know the system and we know how to fight for you. We know what the prosecutors will do, we know their weaknesses, and we'll do everything at our disposal to get you the best possible outcome. Your case will receive the personalized attention it deserves. McDowell and Associates, attorneys, has the experience and the skill to make sure you or the ones you love receive the best legal defense and strategy. Call 213-401-2322 or visit McDowellDefense.com. That's 213-401-2322. 2322 or McDowellDefense.com. Se habla español. When your future is on the line, your future is our business. Call us at 213 401 2322.
0: Streaming live. The leader in Internet Talk Radio. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: This is your best legal defense with Lonnie McDowell. If you have a question for the host or guest, we're ready to take your call at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Be sure to tell the screener if you need to remain anonymous with your question. You may also send an email to radioshow at McDowellDefense.com. Now, back to the show.
2: Hey, welcome back. Uh, My guest host uh, this week is Aaron Forrester, and we're talking about uh, DUI and DUIDs, which is driving under the influence with drugs in your system. Uh, Prior to the commercial break, we were just getting into the FST, so I want to discuss some of those. Now, these are field sobriety tests which have been sanctioned uh, by NHTSA, which is the National Institute of uh, It's (laughs) it's like, <laughs> thank you. <it. laughs> I forgot you, right? And these are, are tests that are uh, supposedly able to detect the influence of alcohol. Um, I mean, one of my arguments that, that, I, that I've used in, in trial is uh, these tests are actually uh, nothing more than you know, roadside gymnastics. I mean, most of them are very subjective as to the officer's observations. Uh, The officer can basically see what he wants to see. And a lot of them put you into uh, positions that aren't normal um, for any human being to be standing in with your, you know, one foot down and the other one raised six inches, slightly bent. And, and, you know, it's just, uh, you know... Something that you don't normally do, and the the other part with with these FSTs is since there's no baseline, the officer has no idea how you perform this any other time.
3: When you're sober, specifically.
2: Right. Well, I mean, the person could be sober, he, but the officer doesn't know that because he's basing it on you know. Oh, and you've seen it, and and uh, you know it's almost in it's almost a cut and paste in almost all police reports and DUIs is they swayed for for you know two to four inches side to side Uh, their foot was shaky uh, all of these things so let's talk a little bit about the FSTs how reliable they are what they are um, and why they're allowed to use them
3: well for one uh, the FSTs are uniform they're supposed to be administrated the exact same way whether you're in California, Nevada, Virginia, New Mexico etc what we do find is, if they're administrated correctly, they do have a determinative value. Not necessarily a slam dunk case, but they will show possible intoxication, but they can also show other ailments. For example, the Romberg Balancing Test is also used by chiropractors to determine nerve degeneration of the spinal cord. Hey,
2: and, and what is the Romberg Balancing Test, just for listeners who may not know that?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: this is the test that you were mentioning earlier, raising one foot, keeping balance. A lot of times you're going to have to count numbers, you're going to have to do a best guesstimate, you're going to have to call out the number at the specified time. The officer, at the very same time, is timing you you've seen whether you're using your hands or you're wobbling around to keep your balance. Uh, One common theme about field sobriety tests is they typically have you doing two things at once. Because in theory, when you're intoxicated, it's very difficult with the overall situation to have your mind on multiple things and do them all correctly at the same time.
2: And, And the theory there is that to drive a car you need to have hand-eye coordination and be able to multitask. And that's what these tests are allegedly designed to detect is whether your multitasking ability is on what par with normal. But again, my whole thing with these tests is you don't know what the individual normal is. So it's funny because
3: Lonnie and I go to conferences all the time to stay up to date on DUIs and What new studies are out there, what defense attorneys and prosecutors are finding out each year. One thing we're learning is even when officers are learning about the field sobriety test, they have to administer these tests upon each other. A lot of times on their first goes, they're failing the test. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which means if they were pulled over, they're already showing signs of being intoxicated. Right. Uh, the other thing that we're noticing a lot, and maybe these, uh, these the new cameras that are supposed to be attached to the officer's vest may help a little. But one thing we're finding is certain police vehicles are equipped with cameras. However, even though these cameras display almost everything, what's happening while you're driving, as you're getting pulled over, The officer will position their vehicles in such a way that the field sobriety tests are never on camera. Because of that, it's really, you could be administering this test, or you could be following this test perfectly, yet the defense attorneys may not even be aware because we can't visually see the test. So this is times where, I know Lonnie's done this and I know myself (laughs) do this all the time, you're sitting listening to the audio of the test. You're standing there with a stopwatch in your own office. You're trying, or as far as the walk walking turn test, you're counting the steps out loud right. <laughs> in your office, trying to determine whether your client is actually following the test correctly to the best of your abilities that you can as the attorney.
2: Right. And these tests are very hard to follow. I mean, I, I, I forget if you've ever. Been gone through the DUI checkpoint. I have, and this was, this was many years ago, and it's, it's a very kind of nerve-wracking experience. Uh, I had had one beer like, maybe about three hours before. So you get to the DUI checkpoint, you know, good evening, sir, you know, have you had anything to drink? Yeah, I had a beer three hours before. Uh, And this was before I was an attorney and realized that that's not what you want to tell the officer. Um, Because that gives them the the excuse to get you out of that car. It's like, okay, fine, pull your car over to the side. It's like, okay, here we go. So it started off with the follow the pen test. And there were two officers. And, um, you know, again, as I said before, I was an attorney. So I didn't really realize the FSTs are voluntary. You do not have to uh, submit to them. You can politely decline because what they are designed to do, more so than find out if someone is under the influence, it's to give them evidence against you to make their case. Um, Or at least that's the defense theory. (laughs) Um, But we did the the follow the pen, and then we did the walk and turn. And it was walk nine steps, you know, heel to toe, uh, down the, you know, and they don't actually give you a straight line to walk, they just imaginary straight line. Uh, turn a certain way, and then walk back 10 steps. And I'm doing it, and I want to and, of course, I get to 10, and, well, whoops, I was supposed to turn on 9. <laughs>
3: I'm
2: like, okay, this is not good. But I'm also, you know, I was aware enough that I'm looking at it, I'm going, this is a sloped surface, the sidewalk is cracked. You know, this is not, you know, a fair test. Um, and then we did the, I forget, there was another test that I did, and I went, oh, just by the officers, look, I'm going, I'm not doing well here. <laughs> and I, I was like, I know I can't can't be uh, under the influence. And then, then we did the, the, uh, the field sobriety, uh, what's called the PASS, which is the, uh, the breathalyzer that's given in the field, which, again, is... Uh, not required. You're only required to take the breathalyzer, uh, which is an evidentiary test, which is generally given at the station.
3: And let me chime in really mm-hmm. quick. Sure. Long is sure. talking about the PAS device, it's a preliminary alcohol screening. This is the breath test you'll see officers give people while they're by their vehicle. They'll tell you to blow into a machine usually two times, sometimes three, sometimes more. I do want to note, though, certain counties now have an evidentiary breath test, which is within the same device. So while you can refuse a preliminary alcohol screening, if this is not, it makes things a little more complicated, but sometimes they may then have you submit to the evidentiary alcohol screening, and that, at least legally, while you can refuse it in California, or Nevada, for example, there are consequences with the DMV if you do refuse the test.
2: Right. Um, with the evidentiary test, uh, it's when you sign your license, you you are agreeing to take this test. If you don't, it's an automatic year suspension of of your driver's license. Uh, but with the, the pass, uh, that one is voluntary. And if they are using the evidentiary test, uh, they do have to tell you that this is the evidentiary test, and this is the test that that uh, that you must take. But uh, getting back to mine, it was did the test, did the two blows? One officer showed it to the other one and said, "Okay, you're, you're .01. You can go." And it was. But I was thinking, had I not, you know, be a, had they just ruled on or, or just looked at the FSTs at that point, I'm sure I would have been arrested because, you know, I was nervous. It was also cold out, and I was just wearing a T-shirt. I mean, it was all of these factors taken in that are so subjective to the officer, whether he wants to, to do it or not. The fact that I blew a .01, you know, it was on your way. Of course, they parked my car, like, three blocks away and do not offer, you know, shuttle service, so I had to <laughs> walk. But, uh, you know, and this brings me to, to another point is it was about one forty-five in the morning. So, what are the worst times to be in your car if you don't want to get stopped?
3: In this answer, I'm going to make specific to California and use the, the reasoning logic I give here for your state if you are not in California. Um, and I'll also give Nevada as well because Nevada is a little tricky. In California, last call for alcohol is typically around 1.30 and 2 o'clock you cannot buy alcohol out here. Because of that, right around 130 1 130, <laughs> you'll start seeing if you stand outside a police station or a highway patrol station, the cars in unison coming out on the road. <laughs> 11:30 12 I can get away with anything. Once one o'clock hits, I can't get away for even making a California roll at a stop side right That will typically go on till at least three o'clock in the morning. If your state has the last call, let's say, at 3 in the morning. It just change those times. Nevada, and you know, I'll speak specifically for Las Vegas, it tends to be around 1-2 in the morning all the way till about 6 in the morning. Because there is not a last call out there, they're really looking for anyone who's leaving a nightclub on a weekend or a weekday. and They know once it's late there's a good chance There's actually a statistic out in Nevada that I saw at one of the the Nevada Highway Patrol offices that said at any given time, one out of four drivers in Nevada are intoxicated. It might have been to Las Vegas, but I'm pretty sure it was Nevada. Now, if that's what the Highway Patrol is seeing every day when they enter and leave their office, every time they pull you over, they're thinking, there's at least a 25% chance you're intoxicated. So, I'll give a special heads up for our listeners in Nevada. You want to be mindful of this. <laughs>
2: all right. Okay. Well, we didn't get to any questions this segment, but we're going to start the next segment because I do have like two or three good questions that people did email in that we want to get to because it goes along with the topic. And I think they're pretty good questions. So, when we come back, that's the first thing we're going to start with are those questions and see what your answers are. All right. Perfect. All
0: right. The internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: Have you been arrested? Is someone you love in a legal jam? Don't get advice from just anyone. Call the criminal defense experts at McDowell & Associates. Attorneys. McDowell & Associates has over 20 years of legal experience. The National Trial Lawyers Association named us one of the top 100 California criminal defense trial attorneys for two years in a row. We know that sometimes good people just make bad mistakes. We know the system and we know how to fight for you. We know what the prosecutors will do. We know their weaknesses and we'll do everything at our disposal to get you the best possible outcome. Your case will receive the personalized attention it deserves. McDowell and Associates, attorneys, has the experience and the skill to make sure you or the ones you love receive the best legal defense and strategy. Call 213-401-2322 or visit McDowellDefense.com. That's 213-401-2322 or McDowellDefense.com. Se habla espanol. When your future is on the line, your future is our business. Call us at 213-401-2322.
0: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts.
1: VoiceAmerica.com. This is your best legal defense with Lonnie McDowell. If you have a question for the host or guest, we're ready to take your call at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Be sure to tell the screener if you need to remain anonymous with your question. You may also send an email to radioshow at mcdowelldefense.com. Now, back to the show.
2: Hey, and welcome back. I'm here with Aaron Forrester, and we're talking about uh, DUIs and DUIDs. Um Just for the listeners, uh, you know, I've gotten uh, several email questions. Um, but if anyone wants to call in, I just want everyone to know that you are anonymous. You, you can call in. Uh, you don't have to worry about uh, uh, not being anonymous and, and people finding out who you are. But if you'd rather just email the question, and some people are doing, that's fine, too. So let's get right to it. Uh, Here's a couple of questions. So the first one is, um, and it goes along with what we're talking about, Uh, my daughter wants to get a medical marijuana card. Uh, She has suffered from chronic pain for several years. Uh, However, the writer says that she's concerned uh, with her driving if she uses the marijuana, even if she's uh, careful not to drive while high, uh, since she understands that marijuana stays in the system. Uh, she indicates that she lives in the country, so taking a bus or Uber is not an option. Uh, she wants to know if she was stopped after she uses medical marijuana for any kind of traffic violation or accidents, what are the potential consequences and what should she do? And I think we've answered a lot of that, but I think the what should she do is, is a great part of this question.
3: Well, I think this is a great question in general for what we're discussing. Um, and it leads to the point that I don't know if we drove home yet. Because marijuana does stain your system, if you get pulled over, a normal pullover, uh, speeding violation, etc, if you're not going through the field sobriety tests, if the officer's not suspicious of whether you're intoxicated or not, you're probably fine. How often does an officer tell you, "Get out of the vehicle?" Um, it happens sometimes, not all the time. But with marijuana users, there's this extra stress because we do know if the officer does go that route, his preliminary tests are most likely going to show you are intoxicated or you do, as long as he gets a chemical test on you, he's going to show there is marijuana in your system. And now it's up to your defense attorney to show that his science is bogus and he can't prove that you're intoxicated while driving. But that again becomes a big fight. I think for the most part, and typically if you're driving during the day, this isn't really going to be too much of an issue. Um, However, if you are driving, let's say between 1 in the morning and 3 in the morning, or even at different hours that you give the officer some kind of suspicion, it becomes an issue. Let me give uh, a really quick example. User driver smokes marijuana daily. Driver goes to work, has a 12-hour shift. The 12-hour shift starts at 9 p.m. Now let's make it different hours. Starts at 3 p.m. and is over at 3 in the morning. 3 in the morning, driver gets in their vehicle, driving back home and they get pulled over by highway patrol. Because we're in the hour of 3 in the morning, the highway patrol is probably going to start with the field sobriety test. They're going to ask questions. And guess what? When they come to your vehicle, your eyes are probably red. You're tired. It's three in the morning. On top of that, you might be showing signs of being nervous because you're pulled over, maybe restlessness. Might be sweating a little. Now here's the catch-all, and this depends on the officer and you can't even account for it, but some officers might just say, it smells like marijuana in the car. Regardless of whether it does or not, there's no way anybody's gonna prove it one way or the other.
2: Right. And and a lot of times if you've smoked, even if you haven't smoked for a couple of days, it's in your clothing or you know, if you've smoked in your car, which you shouldn't be doing, but if you do, it's going it's going to linger. So and again, they can't tell when and how this was.
3: That's correct. And I mean I should even say if you have an eighth of marijuana or greater sitting in your vehicle Even once that marijuana is removed from your vehicle, there's most likely a lingering smell. There's things you can do to uh, help safeguard all of this. So for one, try avoiding those certain hours during the night to drive. Two, you may not want to smoke marijuana, the substance itself. You may, there's electronic pens now that have uh, less odor to them. There's edibles that really don't smell at all. They all have their own different risks though. Uh, you want to research this very carefully before just jumping into a right. type of marijuana that you're not used to. Um, so there's things you can do to try to alleviate smell There's thing, or mitigate the smell. There's things you can do to mitigate the likelihood that you'll even be under suspicion of driving um, intoxicated. Other than that, you really have to be a good driver if you do get pulled over it's up to you but i always refer well, I always advise my clients don't do field sobriety
2: right. tests right yeah don't I think most defense attorneys they say you know just politely decline them you know if if they're going to arrest you they're going to arrest you anyway they can't arrest you just because you refuse to do the field sobriety tests um they have to have the probable cause
3: and now you're actually making them Prove their probable cause. If right. you didn't do your field sobriety test, they're going to have to show why, just by observing you and possibly smelling something in your vehicle, that they believe you're intoxicated now. Um, if you got pulled over for speeding, it's most likely not you swerving. In fact, NHTSA has done some studies on marijuana and driving, and there's a lot of doubt out there with the current studies that marijuana even impairs your driving. Or to what degree it, it actually impairs your driving.
2: Right. And that's a very interesting study because it does come from the National Institute of Highway Safety. Yes. <laughs> typically, typically they're on the prosecutor right. side. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. And and that study has, has, has shown that uh, you know, while incidents have gone up, correct? Yes. That there's real no correlation to actually using marijuana.
3: Correct. And it a, a little bit in a gray area, but Basically, what the studies are showing is the rate of accidents with people under the influence has gone up, especially since the decriminalization of marijuana. However, the studies link this not to drug use, but they're actually linking it to the population or the demographic that's getting into the car accidents, which are young males who tend to be in groups. Therefore, it seems that these young males are entering into riskier behavior, they're driving faster, they're not paying attention to the traffic laws as well.
2: And this is this is something that, that goes on all the time. I mean, that's why, you know, young males 18 to 25 have much higher insurance rates. Whether, whether they're smoking or not, it, it's always been known that that's the high-risk, you know, category. Um, but it's also because, you know, years ago they didn 't really keep statistics on marijuana uh, being in you know correct involved and now because so many states have legalized it for medical use and also you know Colorado and Washington having you know legalized it uh, altogether uh, now they 're starting to keep statistics so whenever you start keeping statistics statistics go up um, but I wanted to ask you uh, you mentioned before. Uh, you know there's the we were talking about the PASS test and, and and things. Is there a field chemical test for marijuana? Can they actually test you in the field or do they have to take you to the hospital or to the station to draw blood
3: there, as far as i'm aware of right now, except for one company that is they're claiming and i'm not aware of anyone actually any law enforcement agencies using these tests. But basically, as of right now, it appears that they're going to have to take you down for a urine test or a blood test.
2: Okay. Well, that's great. Uh, we could talk about this for, for hours. Uh, we've only gotten through part of what we were going to discuss today, and unfortunately, we only got in one of the one of the questions. Uh, but, uh, you know, I want to thank you for coming in this week. I think we should do this again and, and finish this conversation because it's great. and There's a lot of laws and, and, and things changing in this, but need to wrap it up. Um We wanted to say, uh, you know, next week we're going to be discussing uh, gang injunctions and gang enhancements. Uh, These have become very uh, big, powerful tools for the, uh, especially here in Los Angeles, for the district attorney uh, and for the city attorney with the uh, gang injunctions. Uh, Gang injunctions, they've been around uh, in L.A. since about the early 1980s, after there was a perceived uh, rise in gang uh, activity and violence. Uh, the ACLU has been challenging these on constitutional grounds because they are limiting what people can do. Uh, These uh, injunctions are are basically against specific persons uh, out of specific gangs, and it limits their activities as to who they can associate with, curfews. Uh, Some of these injunctions even uh, prevent certain members from driving bicycles in certain areas. Uh, So these are getting a lot of attention today because uh, of the ACLU challenging them. And then the other part that we're going to discuss is the Street Terrorism Enforcement and Prevention Act, uh, which is uh, the gang enhancement uh, that DA's love to use and throw onto anyone that has a tattoo it seems these days. Um, And we're going to be uh, discussing that and the really overuse of these two particular tools and whether uh, their use is actually making a difference uh, for safety in in, uh, Los Angeles or if they're just uh, powerful tools that the DA uh, misuses to uh, get uh, stronger sentences and to actually at times force people into accepting deals uh, which they normally wouldn't have taken. So anyway, I want to thank you for tuning in to uh, Your Best Legal Defense. And until next next week, uh, be safe. And remember, the best way to protect your rights is to know your rights.
1: Thank you for tuning in this week to Your Best Legal Defense. Lonnie McDowell invites you to join him, along with another guest expert, next Saturday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, enjoy the rest of your weekend and stay safe.